You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. Today's Bible reading can be found in Acts 28, starting at verse 16, heading all the way through to verse 31. Uh, It's found on 1126 in the Church Bibles. If English isn't your first language, please head to the Church website, where there should hopefully be some other translations. Acts 28, verse 16. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Three days later... He called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there have reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said, through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you'll be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Wonderful. Thank you very much, George. And hi, everyone. My name is Matt. I'm one of the leaders at City Church. And it's my privilege to take us through the very last in our series in the book of Acts. We've taken, um, I guess, over a number of years, not all at once, um, but we've been working through passage by passage uh, the details, the stories, uh, everything that this book um, has been sharing with us. We've been seeking to apply it 
and to our hearts for those of us who live, work, and study here in Manchester. So it's my privilege to close off that series with you right now uh, this afternoon. So as we do that, why don't we begin by praying? Heavenly Father, we come before you excited to hear your voice this afternoon. We know that you are a God who sees us, who knows the details of where we've come from and what lies ahead, not only in this week to come, but in the next term ahead. And so we ask that you would grow us in our love and knowledge of you as this passage is unpacked. Ultimately, may we see the Lord Jesus, and we ask that by the power of your Spirit amongst us, our deepest affections for knowing Christ, enjoying him, and seeking to live for the gospel with all that we have will be kindled afresh. Amen. As I said, we're, we're here we are in the very end of the book of Acts, and it's been a real exciting roller coaster. Uh, of, of events um, and stories that we've been going through. But at the very end, there's something worth paying attention to. Okay, they, don't just write it off as the kind of closing credits at the end of a very exciting film. You know the bit when you go to the cinema and, and everyone's walking out but things are still playing on the screen? That is not this, okay? There are some things that I really, really want you to see. Because this passage records what happened at the very end. The Apostle Paul has finally got to Rome, Rome the epicentre of the Roman Empire, and he's never been closer to the emperor than at this time. Most likely a guy called Nero, a guy who was famous for killing Christians. He liked particularly uh, to cruelly kill them and set fire to them as part of his garden furniture. And Paul, who's under arrest, would have known that at any time now, there'd be the sound of soldiers' boots on the street outside and a sharp knocking on the door, and that would be his time up. So I guess what makes this a really fascinating passage is the question, what do you do? What do you do when you know that your time has almost run out? What do you do when you know your time has almost run out? On 9 a.m. on the 1st of July, 1552, on, on a day, I guess, much like this that summer, in central London, 1552, John Bradford was taken to a scaffold to be burnt alive for maintaining that the promises of the gospel were true. And the witnesses described this is what happened. They said, holding up his hands and lifting his face to heaven, he said, O England, O England, repent of thy sins, beware idolatry, beware false antichrists, take heed that they do not deceive you. And one of the officers which made the fire, hearing Master Bradford, said, if you have no better learning than that, you are but a fool. And we're best to hold your peace. Bradford then asked all the world 
forgiveness. And he forgave all the world. And he prayed that people would, would pray for him. And turning his head to a young man who, who was to be burnt alive next to him, he said, be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord tonight. It's an interesting question, isn't it? Facing a short time left, what would you do? What would you do? Now, I guess for us here in the auditorium or for those of us watching online, for most of us, our fear isn't that it will be the sound of soldiers at the door. For many of us, I guess our fear, it will be rather solemn-looking doctor who will come to us with a terrible cancer diagnosis. But I guess it's even not as dramatic as that, is it, for many of us? We feel every day that life is going past very, very fast. If you're a parent and you've got kids, the speed at which your kids grow up is a reminder of the speed that your own life is traveling, isn't it? If you're single and you would like to be married, well, you know as well as anyone that sense, whether it is accurate or not, that life is just speeding by. The challenge for all of us, it doesn't matter who you are, is that there feels like there's so much to do, so much that we would like like to do or like to achieve in life, but there just never seems enough time. And I guess if you're a Christian here this afternoon, and I appreciate that many of us will be, I guess we would love to be known as those Christians who stood courageously, who lived lives of being faithful witnesses of Jesus when it really mattered. But if you're anything like me, there just never seems to be enough time to live that courageous Christian life. Now in this passage, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is drawing together all of the themes uh, and big ideas like threads right throughout the book of Acts, all the subplots into a single climax distilled into these final few verses. And he's writing for his friend, Theophilus, for, for his friend to grasp hold of the wonder of the gospel and what it means to live a Christian life. And what we see in these final few verses when we look at the Apostle Paul at the very end, we see when everything is stripped away, Paul's priority is to continue to be a courageous witness for the gospel. When everything is stripped away, when there's not much time left, he wants to prioritize living for Jesus, nothing less. And what I want to give you in this final passage from the book of Acts are three markers of a life, a life focused on mission. And the first one is this. The first marker of a life focused on mission is the celebration of new believers, the celebration of new believers. Throughout the book of Acts, Luke has taken great pains to deliberately echo Paul's experience in taking the gospel out 
with his saviour Jesus Christ. He's, he's throughout the book of Acts, there's been a parallel. Jesus did this and then Paul does something similar. Jesus did that and then Paul did something similar. And so it's appropriate in these final moments that we're with the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, Luke parallels this passage with the final moment that Matthew describes the life of Jesus. This final passage in the book of Acts is deliberately meant to parallel what we might know as the Great Commission. That powerful moment when Jesus gathers the disciples together on the mountain and gives them a final instruction. It's in Matthew 28. Let me read to you from verse 16. This is Jesus speaking on the mountain. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Amazing words, isn't it? And so exciting that we're going to hear those words very shortly when Delphine gets baptized. Well, here we are in Matthew 28, and there's a whole crowd around Jesus. And yet here we are in, um, in Acts 28, and, and there's a delegation of Jews living in Rome, a crowd of them come to see Paul. They, they want to meet this celebrity convert from Judaism to Christianity. In, in the Great Commission, we're told that some worshipped, aren't we? They were convinced that Jesus is really God. Uh, and then here in our passage, in Acts in verse 24, we're told that actually Paul attempts to persuade them using all of the arguments that he has that Christianity is real and true. And we're told that just like in Matthew's passage, some believed. And in Matthew's gospel in the Great Commission, we're told that some doubted. They heard what Jesus had to say and they said that we just don't believe that's true. And just like that, here we are in Acts 28 and we're told in verse 24 that others would not believe. Do you see the parallels? And just as Matthew, just as Matthew tells us Jesus' instruction to take the gospel out to all nations, here in Acts chapter 28, verse 31, Luke almost replies to that by saying the teaching about the kingdom of the Lord Jesus was broadcast from the center of Rome and the heart of the gospel empire with all boldness and without hindrance. Do you see the parallels all the way through? It's like a second great commission. And of course, Luke, doesn't he? He leaves out all sorts of details. How was Paul provided for? What happened to him? Who was looking after him? And we don't get any of that detail, do we? Because actually Luke's focus is he wants you to see that just as Jesus said it would happen at the end of Matthew, it's actually happening. The gospel has gone out to all nations. Why does that matter to us here in Manchester today? Because in many ways, Paul's experience in Rome 
is the typical experience for any believer who wants to follow Jesus in the Great Commission. After all, Luke begins the book of Acts with a re-summary of the Great Commission when he quotes Jesus as saying in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, at the very beginning of our book, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If you are a spirit-filled believer here today and you want to follow Jesus' command to take the gospel, the good news out to those who don't know, then Acts chapter 28 that you have right in front of you, well, this is what you should expect to see in your own life. And the first thing that we see is some will listen and some will believe. The, the markers of following a missional life is you will experience some people coming to know Jesus and having the new life in Christ. Um, a whole bunch of us, I think it was about 14 in total, went to Hope Cumbria earlier on in the summer. And it's a, it's a camp that we take teenagers away and they do all sorts of exciting things, but they hear the gospel taught. And there was... There was one night at Hope Cumbria, and we had about, I think, eight um, kind of young people from City Church with us. There was one night um, at the, the main meeting where it was just a remarkable experience where it seemed like the gospel just kind of grabbed people. It felt like the Holy Spirit it just challenged people and encouraged them. And uh, there was tears and people longing to pray with one another and people just wanting to talk about Jesus. It was a remarkable evening. Whether it was leaders or kids, it just seemed like the gospel had taken root and gripped us. Now look, I shouldn't have been surprised by that, but I was. You see, there was no mood lighting the, the music group that evening, well, they did their best. Perhaps they could have only been enhanced by a rainbow guitar strap and open-toed sandals, I don't know. The Bible teaching was faithful to the passage, but it was as probably as innovative as a letter from your dentist. I can say that I was giving the talk. And yet, and yet the Spirit of God seemed to almost descend upon the chapel and affect everyone in the room. You see, I love doing um, camp each year. I love doing Hope Cumbria because you get to work with teenagers who have the world throwing everything at them. Because if you're a teenager, you are bombarded by social media, you're bombarded by uh, all of the, the, the platforms out there, the best writers in Hollywood, the most devious minds in marketing, uh, and yet they're teenagers and say so that they're at an age where they are least able to discern what is good and what is bad, and yet they come on camp and they encounter the surface unimpressiveness of the gospel. And you think it would be as effective as a speed bump stopping a tank. And yet every single year, this is why I do it, because every single year, some of those young people listen and they believe and for the very first time, they declare Jesus is Lord, and we celebrate. 
And just like in verse 24 of Acts, chapter uh, 28, every year all of the youth get picked up on the last Saturday uh, and they're, they're buzzing and chatting about canoeing or rock climbing or whatever they were doing. And yet some leave absolutely convinced that they have a permanent peace with their creator God and they leave having had their eternities transformed. You see, when the gospel is unleashed, God changes lives. That happens in the spectacular and it happens in the unimpressive But that is the experience of what happens when the Word of God is unleashed. And that power that we enjoy when we go to Hope Cumbria each summer is no different to the power that is also accessible to your family, to your friendship groups, and to your colleagues at work, should the gospel be unleashed amongst them. Let me give you this challenge. I, I wonder for you... Because I certainly feel it, if the busyness of life, the busyness of life has meant that we think that actually people becoming Christians is something just for those kind of missionary biographies. I wonder if we think the idea of people becoming Christians in our family, in our office, the schools that we drop our kids off at, in our neighbourhoods, is just for other people who are super spiritual Christians, but just not us. If that's the way that you feel, it is just not right. Because when the gospel is unleashed, the Holy Spirit changes lives and people put their trust in Jesus for the first time. I long for you to experience that amongst people you know the names of personally. Number two, come with me to the second mark of a missional focused life. It's the heartbreak of rejection. Just like in Matthew 28, after Paul's apologetic persuasion, we're told in verse 24 that other people doubted. Some became believers, but other people doubted. And it's not for want of Paul's effort. We're told that he gives a presentation where he explained everything about the kingdom of God and the law of Moses and the prophets. That is a tour de force going through all of the big match of the day highlights of the Hebrew scriptures because Paul wants to demonstrate the wonder of Christianity, its credibility. And yet we're told some doubted. In fact, we're told in verse 25, as they depart, as they leave Paul and the microphones are switched off and the XLR cables are wound up uh, and the empty coffee cups uh, are collected in bin liners, we're told that disagreements actually break out amongst the crowd as people are processing what they've heard. The, uh, the writer, Soren Kierkegaard, describes a story where uh, a fire breaks out in a theater, packed theater, uh, and everyone's in grave danger. And so they've got to get people out of the theater as quickly as possible so they might be safe. And so they send someone out onto stage and they tell them, you've got to get out now. There is a fire in the theater. If you don't get out now, you're going to die. 
and everyone just stays exactly where they are, and in fact, they laugh. Some of them applaud, but none of them move. Why is that? Because the person who came onto the stage to deliver the message was dressed as a clown because they were one of the performers who were going to come on. And so no one believed them. They thought it was all part of the act. That is how it must have seemed to many of the Jews who came to hear Paul's message. Here's Paul, a brilliant uh, Bible teacher. He knows the truths of the gospel inside out. He's sharing his heart out with them. He's talking about knowing the creator of the universe. He's talking about uh, the Son of God dying and then being raised again. He's talking about those who put their trust in Jesus being raised to new life just by faith alone. And yet it's a message of wonder delivered by someone who's in chains, who's strapped to a Roman soldier and who at any time could be carted off to be executed. That is a wonderful message coming from a very unimpressive place. And I guess in many ways that's no, no different to our experience, is it? I remember speaking to, to one student many years ago who said, look, I'm going to have to leave the student group that I'm a part of, the Christian student group, because all of the Christians I know are so unimpressive. Compared with my friends who aren't Christians, the, the, the Christians just look terrible. They, 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 they're just so unfashionable. They just look like losers of life. And I just don't want to be part of that group anymore. I wonder how many of us feel a deep sense of regret, perhaps even deeper, a sense of guilt, that perhaps we feel that we should have done more when a person who was a Christian friend of ours walks away from the faith. But there's something that we should know so that we don't kick ourselves when that happens, and it will happen if it hasn't happened to you already when our friends or family or colleagues disregard the gospel, well, look with me at verse 25. We're told that Paul makes a final statement. It's a mic drop moment that brings the whole of the gathering to a close with a dramatic finish. It's Paul quoting from Isaiah 6, and it's right there in verses 26 to 28. And he quotes this moment from Isaiah's prophecy where... Uh, there's a passage which references God giving instructions to the prophet Isaiah. And God's instructions to the prophet Isaiah is that God's judgment on rebellious people of Israel will be that they will be present when the, the, the God's message of salvation goes out, but not all of them would hear it. They would be present but they wouldn't take it to heart. They wouldn't truly listen. The, the image of closed ears in our passage, in our quotation, is of an elderly person whose hearing is long gone. There's no hearing aid. Life is shut off. They're there present when you're talking to them, but they can take nothing in. The image of a calloused heart in our passage is, a, is the idea 
from the original Hebrew of a, of a heart that is swollen or yellow, I guess, that we would describe it under layers and layers of a lifetime of fatty tissue that constricts and strangles. It is a picture of unhealth, an imminent heart attack, an image for us worthy of the packet of any cigarette. That's what we're talking about. And to quote this, Paul is being deliberately provocative because he's trying to say to his audience, those who have gathered around him, these these crowd of Jews, he's saying, look, some of you know your scriptures backwards. He says, you talk the talk, you look like the real deal. You have a reputation as one who walks with the Lord. You hold respectable positions of responsibility within the spiritual community. And... But though you have lived years of your life in the presence of the holy word of God, you never actually get it. You will never actually truly change. And perhaps no one will actually know from the surface, but you, that you're just going through the motions. And sometimes, perhaps not even you will have noticed that there is no living faith. Paul is basically describing some of his listeners as a tragic person who's lived all of their life thinking that they have a rare and precious jewel only when they come to their end of their life to cash it in at their moment that they most need it only to find it's a fake and worth nothing. That's why it's so provocative what Paul's saying here. But it makes you think, doesn't it? Well, it may make you think of yourself, where do I really stand? But it should make us think that actually the typical experience of the Christian community is sometimes some of your friends who you would have bet your house on were genuine believers will tragically turn out just have been going through the motions as they walk away. Some of us even here this afternoon may depart like the crowd in Acts 28, having sung praises to God, perhaps even written out a prayer request to God, and yet there's a danger that some of us may not even attend another church again outside of today. Some of us, here's the challenge, right, may come here every single week or tune in online every single Sunday, here or someone else, hear the message of the gospel that Paul proclaimed from his house in Rome and yet never truly get it. How do we cope with that? Well, the calling of the Christian, as we see modeled with Paul, is to build relationships with those who will sometimes, I guess, let us down. To build relationships with those who actually will sometimes walk away and it will break our hearts when that happens. It makes me think of Christ's sorrow at the Last Supper when he's got his meal with his friends and there is Judas and there is Jesus And Jesus knows exactly what will happen and surely he's heartbroken about it. 
But of course, if this is what happened to Jesus, then why wouldn't it also happen to us? Yet we have one in the Lord Jesus who is at the right-hand side of our Father in heaven, who even through our tears or disillusionment, when our heart breaks, when friends walk away from the gospel, we have one in heaven who says, I get it, I understand, it's happened to me. And it hurts, and rightly so. Let me ask you this. How many of you have expectations that the Christian life should always be in the direction of better, more, greater happiness? That is not the model of the Christian life from these final passages that we have of Paul's life, is it? That is not the model of Paul. That is not the model of Jesus. Actually, the heartbreak of being in relationship with those who will walk away from Christ is part of the course. That is not a sign to say that you are doing it wrong or could have done more. That is just the way, tragically, it has always been. Well, come with me to our third and final point. The final mark of a life focused on mission is gospel-obsessed. Come with me back to that observation at the very beginning of our passage. Paul, by anyone else's standards, well, his life and his career had come to an end. I guess you could say of Paul at the very end of the book of Acts, well, he had a good run, but they got him eventually. He's like one of those superstar footballers who ends up in the premiership. They do an amazing job. They score loads of goals. Everyone's singing about them. And then a number of seasons later, everyone's forgotten. What happened to that person in the end? Others, when they look at Paul, they might say, well, do you know, Paul, he took a legitimate gamble to try and get an audience with Caesar. Well, that would have been great, wouldn't it? But... Shame it didn't work out like that. Well, two years in lockdown as a result. What a shame. Yet the reality for Paul, as we can see in our passage, is it's business as usual. His priorities actually haven't changed, have they, from when he was free. His priorities haven't changed from taking the gospel out in good season and bad season, wherever he's been. We've seen that right throughout the book of Acts. It's another city for Paul and another opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with those who don't know. Have you ever got one of those those tourist t-shirts from friends that says, you know, I went went to this city and all I got was this lousy t-shirt? Have you ever got one of those? Well, for Paul, he's got like, I went to Rome and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. He just throws it on the pile. It's just another t-shirt, just another city. But the priorities don't change. The focus is, I've got to take every energy, opportunity I have to unleash the gospel amongst these people so that there might be new life. I guess the question is, how does he keep going? For the rest of us, his situation of being jailed up It would have been disillusionment, wouldn't it? No one would blame him if he quit, gave up. I tried my best, it just didn't work. How do you keep stepping out for Christ? How do you keep picking yourself up after disappointment, after disappointment, after disappointment? Well, earlier 
in Isaiah 6. That's the passage that Paul quotes. Earlier on in Isaiah 6, this is a few verses before the bit that Paul quotes. If you were to read that, you would read that Isaiah actually finds himself absolutely panicked to be in the presence of God. Isaiah the prophet, he thinks he's going to die because he's there with God and he says, I am a man of unclean lips. And then in a moment of total unexpected surprise, a heated coal gets put on his lips and he is forgiven. And he suddenly realizes that he doesn't deserve it, but he is utterly forgiven. He should have been destroyed because of his sin. Justice should have fallen down upon him, but he's forgiven. And Isaiah's response to being unexpectedly forgiven is, God, wherever you want me to go, send me. Whatever you want to happen, send me. Because it's this, to know that you are unclean and then to unexpectedly receive total forgiveness and then to choose to be sent out to serve the Lord, that is the engine of Isaiah's life. But that is also the circuit board that activates all believers. It is Isaiah's story, it is Paul's story, it is my story, and it is your story if you're a follower of Jesus. And I guess the heart application of this is to always prioritize sharing the gospel, even when it's hard, and to keep going, even when you get rejected. It's going to require you to be gospel-obsessed. It's going to require you to be constantly fighting to remember again and again and again the wonder of what it means for you to have been a sinner that has suddenly been forgiven by God and undeservedly given everything. You've got to fight to remain experiencing the awe of God, who is the creator of the universe, who knows you and loves you. You've got to fight for that. That fight has to be our priority. That obsession for the gospel has to be what we hold on to. Some of our friends, some of our colleagues, some of our children will come to faith if we step out for the Lord and we will rejoice. Some of our friends, some of our colleagues, some of our children will walk away and our hearts will break. But our goal, our goal must be no matter what happens, we hold on tight to the gospel. You see, this is a new term for us, isn't it? It's almost like a fresh start when we come to the beginning of September. So many things are going to demand your attention and your priority. Can I say that the application of this is to fight that the gospel must be your priority? If you've never been to a connect group, that's a small group community where we keep encouraging each other to stay on fire for Christ. You've got to make it your priority to be there. 
We, we've got a uh, whole equip program that we run midweek. We've got one coming up which is going to launch everything off that is seeking to help us with our own devotional times, our own quiet personal times with the Lord to, to seek to give us some resources to regalvanize. If you're going through a dry part of your life spiritually, this is a track that is designed for you to come alive again. You've got to make it a priority to be there. And finally, in a city of 2.8 million, most of whom have no idea who Jesus is, whatever priorities that you have in place for this term, sharing the gospel, whether you are accepted or rejected, has to be the priority no matter what, right? Let me finish with this. Some of you have heard of me talk about this guy before. He's a guy called Tim Peters. I knew him when he was a student, and, and I was a, a staff worker working for the universities. Um, I knew him when I was discipling him through uh, various programs and at church. I knew him very well and had the opportunity to work alongside him. And he even began a trajectory of going into full-time Christian ministry, which was wonderful, such celebration for that. But he was early on in his Christian ministry diagnosed with an incurable brain tumor, which basically meant that he was going to die in a very short space of time. And on the trajectory towards death, his body would basically lock himself inside and shut down around him, trapped within his own body as a prison, unable to really communicate well with the outside world. And you wonder in those moments amongst the tragedy of all of that, you wonder whether the things that he was taught when he was discipled would be sufficient to encourage him, to keep him going in Christ, even as this tragedy engulfed him and ate him from the outside in. You just wondered, would the gospel be powerful enough, even in the midst of that tragedy, which is, for many of us, an absolute worst-case scenario, isn't it? To slowly die, to know that your time is coming to an end, and there's nothing that you can do about it. I remember speaking to him not long before he died, and Every word he said, he had to really contort his face, and it was his every energetic effort just to get a syllable out. I met with him, and he asked me, he asked me how I was getting on with sharing the gospel. It's an interesting question to be asked, isn't it, by someone on their way out. And I said to him, look, well, it's really important that I do it, but I've just been so busy lately, I, I, I've just struggled to get around to doing it. And with every syllable costing a huge amount of contortion and energy, he said this, you make time for what matters. You make time 
for what matters. That's a word for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that we've learned from the book of Acts. We thank you for the encouragement of seeing the gospel go out so powerfully to the ends of the earth. And we long to be people who take up the baton and seek to take the gospel to every corner of this city of Manchester where you have placed us to serve. We are so sorry how the priorities of the busyness of life steal that away. We are sorry for how quickly we are discouraged when we are rejected. And yet I ask that having seen it modelled by Paul in this passage, we would be a church full of people so obsessed by the gospel, so enraptured by the wonder of forgiveness, that we would be undeterred when we are pushed back. And we would be hungry at every opportunity to make sharing the gospel with others the great priority of our life. So that we could say with Luke, the gospel went out in Manchester with great boldness and unhindered. Amen.